Let's pray. Father, um, we are here because you command our destiny. We're here because you've called us here, you've brought us here, uh, you've made us worshipers, Lord, and you've changed us with your gospel. Uh, Lord, we come not bringing uh, an impressive resume from this week. Uh, We come bringing sins and doubts and fears and failures, Uh, but we come to a God with open arms and with a cross that cleanses us of all these sins. And Lord, I pray that we would believe it, and I pray that the work you would do during these next five weeks especially would be to drive the truth of your gospel, that you've loved and accepted us because of your cross, deeper and deeper into our hearts so that it changes the way that we live. Uh, Lord, we don't want to stay where we are. Uh, We want to grow. We want to know you more. We want to be more like you. We want to be lights for you in the world around us. And Lord, we are powerless to do that, but we know that there is the power of Christ working in us, the power of your gospel working in us to change us, transform us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that. Uh, Do it today with the power of your word working in our hearts. Do it over these next few weeks. And God, over these next few years even, I pray that your spirit would work in us in such a way that we would look back and say we are totally different than we used to be because of the work that you've done in us. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we just finished up the Gospel of Mark last week, and uh, we're going to be spending the next five weeks going through a series that we're calling Rhythms. And this is going to be a series really of uh, five different topics, and it's pretty rare that we do that. Usually we teach straight through books of the Bible, and right as soon as this series is done, we're going to jump into the book of Ecclesiastes, which I'm really excited about. Um, but we wanted to do this series really as a very practical help to give everybody in our church some really important tools to be able to continue uh, to grow in our walks with Christ. Because all of us are here, hopefully in part, because we want to grow to know Jesus more. You know, as a church, we want to grow, and we want to grow numerically. That's true, and God has blessed us, and we've reached more people, and we want to reach more and always make room for more people to come in among us. But for that to really happen in a real and consistent and ongoing way, the growth is going to have to be more than just uh, people coming in, but we're going to have to get to know God better. We're going to have to grow as individuals. Uh, All of us could be more than we are in this city, and I really believe that God has called us to be more. He's called us to be people who, over these next bunch of years, hopefully you'll be able to look back at these years and say, over those years, I became more humble, or I became more gracious, or I became more courageous to speak the truth of the gospel or to lead my family. Uh, I gained more knowledge about Jesus and who he is, so I'm more able to teach who he is and teach the Bible. Um, We want to have lives that look more obedient to Jesus five years from now than they do right now. We want to have lives where there's more purity because of the work of the gospel in our hearts. We want to, as individuals, become increasingly different than the world around us that doesn't believe. But at the same time, we want to get closer and closer to them so that we could bring the message of Christ and the truth and the hope of the gospel to the friends and neighbors and family members and coworkers that we're going, that we're living closely with so that they can come to know Christ. We want to be a church full of people who will lay aside my comforts and my preferences for the good of the mission of Jesus, but then will be more joyful in the end than when I actually had my comforts and had my preferences because I find my joy in Christ. And we want all this to happen without becoming more religious, without becoming arrogant, without becoming a group of people who thinks that we can look down our nose at all the other people, all the other churches, all the other ministries, and feel like we're somehow better or superior. We don't want any of that. We want the gospel of Jesus to be imprinted on our hearts and our lives and our souls in such a way that we become radically different, but humble and gracious and loving toward the people around us so that we're the light that this city needs. Um, I don't believe that that's an impossibility. I think that all of us are called to grow. Second uh, Peter 3.18 says this, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. 
So the command for us is that we're supposed to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So we are supposed to grow in knowledge. This is important. It's important to know more about Jesus, to know the Bible better, to know the gospel better, to know theology better. The the facts are important. But then he also says to grow in grace, that we take the cross of Jesus where God came and pursued us and died for us and was buried and rose again, and we allow that to be impressed on our hearts and lives in a deeper and deeper way so that we start to look more and more like Jesus Christ. God's called us to that. He's commanded us to live that way. And the hope is that over time, the gospel will take such a huge root in our lives that we will be very, very different. You know, a big mistake we make, though, is sometimes we expect spiritual growth and growth in Christ to be an overnight thing. We expect it to just come right away where all of a sudden we're spiritual giants, we're mature, uh, we're stronger in the face of sin. And sometimes that does happen. Sometimes God just invades a life in a way that just changes everything immediately, and somebody over a course of weeks even becomes a completely different person. But normally, the way that we grow is over time. Uh, Little by little, there's transformation, and you don't necessarily notice the change from month to month or week to week, but you should be able to look back over five years of walking and following following Jesus, walking with him and following him, you should be able to see a big difference. You should be a different person than you were five years ago. So over time, it should happen, but we shouldn't expect it overnight. My son Hudson, we are always telling him that he's going to become like a daddy someday. And this week, he he was out in the sun a lot, so he got some sun, and all the blonde hair on his arm was standing out. And so he saw this fuzz on his arm, and he said, I'm becoming a daddy. (laughs) He he just expects it to happen overnight. Like He's thinking there's going to be this incredible Hulk moment where he goes from a three-year-old to full-grown adult, where all the hair falls out of his head and grows on his back like all in an instant, and and he's transformed. And so he's just kind of looking for the rumblings, like, when's this moment going to happen? And it's not going to happen in a moment. It's not going to happen overnight. But we can definitely see a difference in a picture of Hudson today at three, four this week, and two, two years ago. And, And hopefully at 10, we'll see a big difference. And at 20, there will clearly be a big difference because over time, we grow. And as Christians, while we shouldn't expect a radical change overnight all the time, over time, we should grow. We should change. We're supposed to be people that, that are zealous for good works, the Bible says. So the way that we live is supposed to look different because we're Christians. Now, before we get too much further into that, let me just make something really clear. We believe in free grace as a church. Which means that if you come in here and you say, I'm not a Christian, I don't know God, I've got all this sin, how do I get right with God? We will never tell you, here are the things you need to do to make God happy with you. We'll never say, go out and turn over a new leaf. We'll never say, try harder. We'll never say, put money in the offering box, come to church, get baptized, and if you do those things, maybe God will accept you. That's not our message at all. The message of our church is the gospel message, which says that we were so sinful and so corrupt and so broken, there was nothing we could do about it, so God came to us. Jesus came. He pursued us. He died on the cross to give us his life. He was buried and he rose again. So that's just by simple faith in him that we're forgiven and changed and transformed. It's not by anything that we do. There are passages galore that say that. One of them is Titus chapter 3 verse 4. It says, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God, our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's not by our works, but it's by the mercy of God. It's not by anything we do, but by the work that Jesus did in coming and dying for us. But when we say all that, and we we really believe it, that, that we receive grace from God on a totally free basis, 
We also need to answer some of the verses that say that works really matter. That the things we do matter in a huge way to God. Not as part of the recipe for getting us forgiven, not as part of the recipe for making us Christians, but as the clear evidence that we really have become Christians. In fact, James chapter 2, if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn there, if you don't have one, there's probably one in a seat near you. If you don't have one at all, you're welcome to keep that as a gift to you. Um, if you do have one, uh, don't steal our Bible, but uh, if, uh, feel free to grab that. In James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James used this example. He says that, uh, imagine someone comes to your house and their clothes are barely held together. They don't have shelter. They don't have food. They come into your house and you say, listen, I want you to know how bad I feel for you. Uh, I, I, I couldn't imagine being in a situation like you're in. I couldn't imagine not having food or shelter or clothing. Um, I'm really glad that God has blessed me so that I've got a whole pantry full of food back there. And so I, I just want you to know, I love you. I feel deeply for the situation you're in. I wish it wasn't that way. Um, but you need to get going now. And then you don't give them any food or clothes or shelter. Then everything you said about loving them, everything you said about caring about them not having clothes and food and shelter, it's really all just a charade. It's not true. It's something you said to get them to like you. It's something you said as a show, but it's just not truly what you believe. Because if you really did love them, you would do something about it if you could. You'd feed them. You'd give them shelter. You'd give them clothing. You can't say that you love someone and then do something that's the opposite of love and still cling to your claim that you love them. And he says faith is really the same way. We, as people of faith, say that I am a Christian. We say, I have believed in Jesus. I recognize how sinful and broken I was. I believe that he came to me. He died on the cross for me. He saved me. He changed me. He washed my sins away. I believe all of that is completely true. But then if we don't have a life that looks like a life of faithfulness, then our claim to have faith is a charade too. He says, that's actually just fake. And he says, can such faith save him? Now, he's not saying that faith doesn't save He's saying that real faith saves, and real faith transforms a life. It does something. It changes you. It changes the way that we live. And in fact, the evidence that we have of what we believe is the works that we do. Uh, look at verse 18. He says, someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So he says, the evidence of real saving faith in Jesus is that works flow out of our lives. And so week after week, we'll say as Christians, we need to go out of here and we need to live out what we believe, which is absolutely true. But the truth is we, we don't need to be told that because we always live out what we believe. The way that we live demonstrates what we believe all the time. Uh, when I was in teen ministry, our church had a, a big gym. And so we would do at our big like Friday night teen event, there was dodgeball because it's good for kids. And so we would do dodgeball, balls would be flying all over the place. And then there would be free time which was crazy. Um, at, at that point, 50 or 60 kids would be in the gym, dodgeballs flying everywhere, basketballs flying everywhere. And so if you walked through the gym, you had to keep your wits totally about you because you could get blasted easily. 
um, especially if you were the youth pastor. And so I would walk through just always looking for, for balls flying at me out of the corner of my eyes. And I remember a time I was standing there talking to somebody in the gym, and I saw this ball flying right at my face out of the corner of my eye. And so I flinched in a huge way, and there was no ball coming. Um, so, so here's this guy, I'm talking to him about our ministry, you know, here's what we try to do to minister to kids, and then all of a sudden I just duck for no reason whatsoever. I was living out my belief. I, I firmly believed that there was a ball flying toward my head, and because I believed that, I flinched. Uh, we always live according to what we believe is happening. Now, my belief was totally wrong. I was wrong that there was a ball flying toward my head, but because I believed there was, I acted accordingly. And the truth is, all of us live out what we really believe on a heart level. Now, that can tell us something about how we grow as Christians. If what we believe changes, then our behavior changes. If our faith changes, if if we come to believe more fully in the message of the Bible, then the way that we live changes too. So, So faith in Jesus creates in us significant change if you give it enough time. Otherwise, it's not real faith in Jesus, and we're not really Christians. And the Christian life is not the same old life with a bunch of Jesus stuff added into it. It's a life that's changed by faith in Jesus and then continually changed by more faith in him. Faith makes us new people, makes us different people. But those of us who've been Christians for a while, we know that we're not as different as we'd like to be. Uh, we, We still bring the same sins to the table. We still go back to some of those old ways of thinking. We still lust. We still lie. We still covet. We still gossip. We still get arrogant and start to feel self-sufficient, like we're okay. We get into seasons where we're complacent and we don't really care that much. Uh, Our walks with Jesus seem dead. But if we want that to be different, if we want to grow out of those seasons, the key is recognizing that all of our sins show that we have a problem with our faith. We have a problem with what we really believe. We believe lies and we don't believe the truth. Now, none of us would say that we believe those lies, but the way that we live always shows what we believe. You know, for example, it, the reason that we lie to people is because of a problem with what we believe. Uh, we lie to people because we really, in our heart of hearts, believe that acceptance from those people is more important than obeying God. Now, if you've been a Christian, you wouldn't say that. You, you would say, no, of course obeying God is more important. God is far more important to me. He's my God. I worship him. He's ultimate. And you can rattle off all the theology that says God's ultimate and says that he's more important. But if in the moment you choose praise from people over the praise of God, it's because you believe praise from people is more valuable. That's what you really believe. Now, it's not that you're not a Christian because you lie, but that lie comes from a lack of faith. It comes from not really believing what's true. You know, if you're willing to, to hide the fact that you're looking at pornography from your family, but then do it when only God is looking, what you're saying about what you believe is, I believe that God doesn't see. I believe that he doesn't care. I believe that my mind is mine to do what I want with it. And now you wouldn't really believe that in a doctrinal statement as a Christian. On a test, you would say, no, God does see all things. He does care. He is pure. He is holy. He does command not to lust. Like, I know what the answers are, but the truth is your real faith is that that doesn't matter. And so the way to really change and get sin out at the root is to build faith down into the roots of those sins. Every sin we commit, every failure to obey, every failure to grow is just a symptom of lingering unbelief. It's just a symptom that we don't really believe what we believe. 
And so the way that we grow is we, we take that faith and we push it deeper into all of those unbelieving corners of our hearts. Um, Debbie and I, because we're nerds, we watch tons of documentaries, and um, I think that's all that's on Netflix anyway. And so um, and I fall asleep in 15 minutes, so, so I know the early history of a lot of different things um, from, from all these documentaries we watch. And, um, and we'll, we'll watch some war documentaries, and one of the remarkable things about the way war has changed since telecommunications have changed is that it used to be that a war could be won and over and a treaty signed and people in all kinds of cities and villages still fighting battles for that war that's completely over because they haven't heard about it yet. Uh, the, the messengers didn't get the message to them that the war was over. They didn't hear that the cause has already been settled. And so they're still out fighting for a war that they didn't need to fight. They're fighting a battle that doesn't need to be fought because they don't recognize that the war has already been won or lost. They don't recognize that it's over. And that's really the way we are as Christians. When we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus comes into our lives and he saves us for real. He cleanses us for real. He makes us right with God. The Bible says he justifies us, meaning he calls us just. He calls us good. He takes his goodness and credits it to our account. And that all happens in the moment when we first have faith in him. Even if that faith is weak and small, the size of a mustard seed, we're cleansed. We're justified. He's come in. The war is won. But we still have behaviors and habits and actions and thoughts that still go back to the old ways, that still act like the war isn't won. There there are parts of our hearts that still don't believe. And so the way that we grow and change as Christians is we we put a lot of effort into building faith into those corners of our hearts. And that really is what this rhythm series is going to be all about. Um, That God has prescribed several disciplines or rhythms of life that should be in our lives on a regular basis to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel, to imprint that gospel truth onto our hearts, onto our soul, onto our lives, so that when we're faced with sin, we'll be able to stand up against it because something about us has fundamentally changed on a faith level. Now, before we get in, and it's really going to be the next four weeks that we talk about these rhythms, I just want you to know, first of all, that the rhythms in our life, the things that we do, they're not things that we do to check boxes to get God to be happy with us. Um, we, we don't, for example, read the Bible every day because we think if we do, we'll be better than everybody else, or we think if we do, God will accept us. We're loved and accepted by God because of the cross of Jesus. There's nothing that we do that can make God love us more. Now, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to do anything. We are supposed to do things, but the things that we do, we don't do with the motive, I've, I've got to get God to be my father. He's your father if you're a Christian. You know, the things that we do are not penance, where we say, I've been bad, so now I need to go out and do a bunch of things to get God to love and accept me. Um, I've been bad, so I need to pray this much, and now God will say it's okay. I've been bad, so I need to read the Bible this much, and he'll say it's okay. Uh, I've been overworking, and now to make it up to God, I've got to rest. Uh, I've been stingy, and so now to make it up to God, I need to be generous. And so we think we need to cleanse our conscience with those things that we do. The things that we do can never cleanse our conscience. And we just end up being like Lady Macbeth, you know, where we're scrubbing and scrubbing and always trying to get the spots out, and they don't come out. There's nothing we can do that, that can make our past go away. The cross does that. Jesus paid for all of that on the cross. He died for us. He was buried. He rose again. He did it, so we don't have to do it. But because he did it and because we believe that, we want to apply diligent effort to building faith into all those areas of our lives that still don't believe. We want to have rhythms in our life that we've got established that will be feeding our faith and nourishing our, uh, nourishing our hearts right at the root so that over time we can change and be different. 
So the four rhythms that we're going to get into over the next four weeks are, number one, being people of the word, uh, people who love the Bible. And, and we love it because it's the book that tells us about Jesus. It's a book that shows us how Jesus is the hero of the story. And the more we read it and the more we immerse ourselves in it, the more he becomes the hero of our stories. Um, next, we're going to talk about being people of rest, um, that we're supposed to be people who work very hard, but also who rest well. And I know I, I get to preach on that one, and I'm terrible at it. And so it's just going to be really convicting, and I'll just... Uh, I don't know what I'll do, but um, well, I'll teach the Bible and say, here's what, what God says. But man, we, we need to rest. We need to be people who rest well because we're people who believe the gospel, that everything's been done for us by Jesus. And when we don't build a discipline of rest into our lives, we start to believe everything depends on me. I'm the most important thing in the universe. I'm the one who keeps this world together. What did God ever do without me? And we start to preach those things to ourselves. In honesty, that's what we really believe. But if we build a rhythm of rest, then we're preaching the gospel to ourselves again and again, reminding ourselves that it doesn't all depend on us. And the third one will be being people of generosity. Because what we tend to do is we tend to hoard. We tend to, to take all of our resources and keep them for ourselves. And what that does is it shows that we just don't believe that Jesus is enough for us, we just don't believe that he'll give us everything we need. And it's by becoming generous people who regularly and rhythmically give to, for the cause of Christ to push back darkness around us, all around us, we remind our hearts of the truth of the gospel that Jesus is enough, Jesus provides, Jesus loves. And then the fourth week, we'll talk about being people of prayer. That prayer is there as a rhythm to remind ourselves of the gospel, that I am dependent on God. I need him for everything. And by becoming a person of prayer, I'm continually reminding my heart of my need for him. I'm nourishing my faith at its root so that I can change. Because here's what will happen. If we look at ourselves and we see sin in our lives and we say, I want to change that, and then we go out and we just try to change it on the surface, we say, I'm not going to do that anymore, or I'm going to start doing that good thing, we'll work really hard at it, we'll get on that treadmill and we'll just start running, but within a few weeks, we're going to be exhausted. We're going to be burned out from the whole process. We might end up pretty bitter. We might end up pretty disillusioned with Christianity. We might look at Christianity and say, I don't know if this thing is real because it doesn't seem like it works. God said to obey. I tried to obey and I, I obeyed for a couple weeks and then I fell short and it was just like I was lopping the heads off of dandelions. I wasn't getting anywhere. Um, I, it, they were coming right back and sometimes they were coming back and bringing all their friends. I wasn't making any progress. But if we nourish faith at the root, then our results won't always be as temporary. It won't feel as forced. Now, just so you don't end up disillusioned, there's no strategy that we'll be able to give you as a Christian for growth and change that will make temptation not tempting. You never reach that point where I'm not tempted by temptation anymore. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, and he had life together. Um, he was a good guy. He knew how to live. He lived perfectly, but still was tempted. So we'll still be tempted. And we'll still have moments where we do need to white-knuckle and force some obedience in the moment. But in the long run, the way to really see life change, the way to really see progress, is not going to be just by forcing something that goes against who we are. But it's going to be by changing who we are, by nourishing the roots of faith. John Owen, who's an old dead guy, he said, holiness is nothing, they're the best ones, right? Um, is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. So our task as Christians is to write more and more into who we are 
the message of the cross of Jesus. And as that becomes who we are, it's not that temptation won't be tempting, but we'll be an awful lot stronger to stand in the face of it because we'll see Jesus as better than the temptation that's out there. We'll start to see obedience not as something that's forced, but something that we can have in our lives accompanied with joy and peace. And we can feel some satisfaction in that because we start to realize that Jesus Christ is superior than all those other sins. Um, I've done this illustration before, but it's good. Uh, there's this book, You Can Change, by a guy named Chester, and he describes the way to change and grow as a religious person and the way to change and grow as a gospel person. Because the two are very different. As a church, we don't want to be religious people who think that it's my works and my good things that I do that get God to like me. We want to be gospel people. We want to be people who believe in Jesus Christ, who love Jesus, who believe in his cross for us and allow that to change us. But the illustration he uses is uh, two characters from Greek mythology. And the first one was Odysseus. And Odysseus was a great sailor. And remember, the big enemy of the sailors was the, the sirens. They used to go out on their ships, and at the island of the sirens, there would be these half-mermaid, half-woman, beautiful creatures. Sometimes they were half-bird, half-woman. And they would sing out in these alluring songs. And as the guys were sailing past their island, they would hear those songs and it would be tempting for them to the point where guys would jump off the ship and swim over to the island uh, to, to be with these sirens, at which point they would eat them. Um, sometimes the guys would take the ships and steer them into the rocks because they just had to be at that island. They had to be with those sirens because that music was so good. It was so seductive and it was so alluring. So Odysseus says, here's what we need to do when we go past that island. I need to take all the men on my ship and we need to put wax in their ears so that they can't hear those songs at all. And then he said, I need to keep my ears open because he had to listen to the gods so he could hear how he could navigate the ship. So he said, I want you guys to tie me to the mast of the ship so that as we're sailing by, I need to be able to hear from the gods so I know which way to sail, but I need to be restrained. You need to hold me back to keep me from doing what I really want to do, which is jump in the water and swim over to those rocks because I know where this whole thing's headed. So they do that and they survive. The guys don't hear the music. Their ears are plugged. He can't get off the mast. He's tied up there, so he can't do that thing that he really wants to do. They're able to steer that ship, and they live. Then there was another character, Orpheus, and he had a different strategy. He went sailing with Jason and the Argonauts. They went past that island of the Sirens, and they start hearing the music. But Orpheus was a gifted musician. So he gets out his lyre, and he starts playing music that's sweeter music than the music that the Sirens can offer. So they're out there singing, and the guys start hearing it. The guys start going crazy, and he says, wait. And he gets out his lyre, and he starts playing, and they say, that's better music. That's superior. And he starts to drown out the songs of the sirens with the song from his lyre, which allows the guys without ears plugged, doing exactly what they want to do, to sail right past that island. Now, the way that we change our behavior as religious people is much more like Odysseus, the first guy. We say, tie me down. Stop me from doing all the things that I want to do. I have temptations out there, so I need a lot of people around me to stop me from going in and doing those things. I'm going to restrain. I'm going to fight real hard. I'm going to white-knuckle some obedience. I'm going to get it to happen in my life. I'm going to live a different life today because I'm working really hard, and I won't do what I want to do, which is sin. I'm going to do the thing I don't want to do, which is be here with Jesus. So we're strapped down, not doing what we want. That's the way religious people change. 
Because religion is all about us. It's all about my works, the things that I do. And so we just work real hard at it and that changes our lives, but it always exhausts us. Eventually we break out of those ropes. Eventually we swim back to the island of the sirens. We fall back into the temptation because that's what we really want. And if our hearts are drawn there, we're going to go there if you give us enough time. The gospel way to change is different. The gospel way to change does say, yes, in the moment, let's do whatever we have to do to not swim to that island. Let's not fall into the temptation. But the long-term strategy for changing our lives, changing our hearts, becoming different people, is that we learn to hear the gospel as better music than any of the temptation. So that we can realistically grow to the point where we say, you know, I was tempted to lie in that moment to get praise from all those people. Jesus has made this difference in my life to where I really sense that the love and acceptance that I have from God is enough. Uh, I have what I want in Jesus. I have what I want in God. And because I have that, the need for human approval has started to lose its hold on me. Uh, And it's not that I never fall back into that. It's not that I never disbelieve the things that I believe. But over time, the more the gospel has been impressed into my heart, the more I become different. And the more what my heart wants is what God wants, so I'm no longer drawn to that island. I start to hear the gospel as the superior music. I start to realize that Jesus is better. I have this relationship with Christ that trumps that temptation so that over time I become a different person. Not a different person because I'm all restrained and religious and grumpy, but a different person who's doing exactly what I want to do as what I want has changed to line up with the message of the gospel of Jesus. In fact, if you want to turn over to Galatians chapter 3, I just want to show you this. In this church of Galatia, people had this process wrong. They were saying, we become Christians by believing in the cross of Jesus, and then we move on from there. We have to do some other things. We have to add some other works to our lives. And if we can get those things in our lives, then we'll be the superior Christians. We can look down at everybody else. We can feel like we're better than everybody else. Our lives will be different. We're obeying the law from the Old Testament. And because we're doing that, we're better people. And so Paul says this to him in Galatians 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians which is a funny way to start this. Uh, one translation actually says, oh, dear idiots of Galatia. <laughs> like, this is guys. And, and what's funny is in chapter six, he says, listen, when somebody is overtaken in a fault, go to them gently. <laughs> Paul says this a couple chapters later. Listen, if somebody's messing something up, if they're sinning, go real gently, put an arm around them in a spirit of meekness, consider yourself lest you also be tempted, help them out of that. The way that Paul did it with these guys is to say, you guys are idiots. <laughs> Let me tell you what's wrong. Someone, and the next thing he says is, who has bewitched you? He says, it's like you've fallen under this spell. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he says, how did you become a Christian? It was by doing good things or by believing in Jesus. And the answer is by believing in Jesus. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's by his grace through faith. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So he says, you think you've got this one way of becoming a Christian, which is repenting of sin and faith in Jesus, and now the way that you get perfected is by working really hard. Your works didn't work. You tried that. You tried obeying the law, and it didn't get you anywhere with God. And then you learn the gospel. You learn this message that Jesus came to you. You put your faith in him. You believe in him. And now you think that your works will do something for you? He says, don't be idiots. He says, the way that we change, the way that we grow, is the same way that we came to faith, that we came to be Christians, which is by faith in Jesus Christ. 
We put our trust in him. We believe in his gospel. We believe in his cross. We believe that that's enough for us. That's what saves us to begin with. And then that's what changes us as we grow. We look to the cross for forgiveness and salvation at the very beginning of our walks with Christ. And we look to the cross for change. We look to the cross to transform us continually. So as we talk about these rhythms, we've got to remember that these things are not an end in themselves. We're not saying you'll be a better Christian and more loved by God and more loved by us if you read the Bible and pray and do these things. But all of these things are rhythms we build into our lives to point us to the cross so that we can be changed by it. The way that we grow and change is by looking to the cross of Jesus, not just by trying real hard. Let me just give you a couple practical examples. Um, let's say that your sin is pride. Um, where you look at yourself, and it can show up in a lot of different ways. Um, sometimes pride is the traditional form where it just looks arrogant. You think you're better than everybody else. Look down your nose at everybody else. More often than not, especially among Christians, it takes a different form. It takes a woe is me. Uh, my life should have been better. Um, things aren't going for me exactly the way they should have gone for me. We, we start to look at ourselves and we start to say, I'm not getting everything that I should get because I'm better than this. So pride can either look huge or it can also look depressed. And, and pretty often our form of pride is, is depressed. It's self-pity. I feel ignored. I feel snubbed. I feel mistreated. Well, the religious way to handle that is to say, I shouldn't do that. I, I need to think less of myself. So, so this week, I'm going to go off into the week, and every time I start to feel proud, I'm going to pinch myself. Or I'm going to wear a what would Jesus do bracelet and snap myself with it. Every time I start to feel like I'm a big deal. And so, so all week long, you torture yourself, and you're making this effort, and you actually see a little bit of difference. You, you genuinely weren't thinking as highly of yourself as you were before. You were guarding against self-pity. But within a couple of days, it wears off. You're tired. The bracelet doesn't hurt anymore. It, it's not doing anything. And that change goes away. Sometimes you even revert to a worse way than you had before that. But here's how long-term building gospel rhythms into your life works against pride. You take the cross of Jesus and you push it into all those parts of your heart that still don't believe it. Uh, you, you meditate. You, you go to the scripture where you hear the story of Jesus and you meditate on the greatness of the cross of Jesus and all that that means. It means that I'm more sinful than I could ever imagine. So how could I highly, how could I ever think so highly of myself? How could I think that I'm better than anybody else when Jesus had to come and die for me? But then it doesn't just leave you in this broken, miserable place. It then says, because of the cross of Jesus, you're loved and accepted by God. So not only are you broken, but you're built up, but you're built up in a way that can't give you pride because he's the one who did it. He rescued you. It wasn't your work. It wasn't the good things that you did. And so the more that you dwell on the cross and think about the cross and think about what Jesus did, through, did for you using the tools of scripture and times of prayer where you're reminding yourselves of your dependence on him, as you do those things and allow that cross to get pushed into those unbelieving corners of your heart, over the long term, you become a more humble person. Over the long term, it changes you. You start to realize that you don't need to keep up this good image. You don't need to pretend anymore because the cross has outed you. It's already said, there's no pretending. And we came to Christ by admitting that we're sinners. And are we so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are we made perfect in the flesh? The way we grow is by continually admitting that, continually trusting in the cross, continually trusting in his grace. So let's say that your sin is anxiety. You're, you're always worried for the future. 
You're always worried about money. You're always worried about your family. And it seems like there's always something. You've got something that your heart's going to cling on to to worry about. And as soon as you get that thing out of your life or you get that thing resolved, you just find something else real quickly. And you always think, okay, I'm worried about this one thing, but then once this is over, then there's going to be no more worry. And it lasts a couple of weeks. You get that one thing out, and then there's something else and something else and something else. And it's like your heart just wants to worry. It, it can be almost like a safe place for us. If I worry enough, if I think the worst about every situation, then I'm protecting my heart enough so that when the worst comes, I can handle it. I can deal with it. I'll be able to because I saw this coming. And so, so we live in this perpetual state of there's always going to be something. There's always going to be something else coming toward me. I, I know bad things are going to happen, or maybe this could happen. Maybe this could happen. And we just worry constantly. The religious way to fight that is to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to worry. And so we go out and we try real hard and snap ourselves and pinch ourselves and work real hard and ask, have people ask us, are you worrying? No, I'm not worrying. Okay, so we're doing great. feels like we're making progress and it never lasts. The gospel way is to do everything we can to remind our hearts of the free grace of Jesus and how much God did for us so that worry can start to dissolve at the root. And to, to take the rhythm of Bible reading, take verses that we find there, like he who spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not much more with him also freely give us all thanks? So we remind ourselves of the cross, that God gave us his son. He held nothing back. He gave his only son to us. Why could we ever believe for a second that he'll hold some other thing back that we need in the future? If he would give his son, if he would give his cross, he'll give everything. So what do I have to worry about? And so what I need is a rhythm of preaching that truth to my heart so that I can be changed and become less of a worrier, not because I'm forcing it, but because I believe the gospel more. We need to, to remind ourselves by praying that God hears, that God responds, that God listens. We need to remind ourselves by giving freely and being generous that God is the one who provides for us. We need to remind ourselves by resting that I can't do enough work to keep the whole world together. God does all that. And as we build those gospel rhythms into our lives and remind our hearts over time, we will change. So we want to be a church where we nourish those things, where we nourish faith at the root. And where, where week after week we're gathering to worship as one of those rhythms to nourish that faith. We take the Lord's Supper as another rhythm to nourish the faith of Jesus. We want the effort that we put into our lives, and the Christian life takes a ton of effort to be aimed at building faith and relationship with Jesus. And as we do, sin starts to lose its power. We don't want to be people who just have a doctrinal statement in our head or in a booklet or on a website, and we say, I affirm that, so now I can be part of the club. We want to affirm that. We want to believe those things. We want to learn a whole lot more. We want to grow in our knowledge. But far more, we want that knowledge to go deep into our hearts. James says this in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So there's a way to believe that's not even Christian. There aren't any Christian demons. Um, they're, they're all bad. They're, they, none of them are faithful followers of Jesus. But he says the demons believe. They know some facts. They know some theology. And it's all vital. It's all very important. But they haven't had that go deeply into their hearts and change them. We want to make sure that we're not a church that just settles for demon-level belief where we've got facts, we know some stuff in our heads, but it hasn't changed us. We need to be changed by the gospel. The real free grace of God should make us real free people who are free not to sin, but from sin. 
One of the great free grace passages in the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So there it is, and we love that. We love the cross. We love that it's free. We love there's nothing we do to get God to accept us. And then he goes on, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he's freely made us Christians. He's freed us from our sin, and it's all by his grace, all by his cross, and all so that we can walk in the good works that he's prepared for us. Now, danger is if we ever reach a point where we say that doesn't matter, following Jesus doesn't matter, doing works doesn't matter, I'm just going to have this faith that I check off in my head. James says, that's demon faith. He says, can such faith save him? Faith alone saves but the faith that saves isn't alone. Over time, it creates a different person. And faith comes into our lives, and Jesus comes, and he sits on that capital of our hearts. He comes, and he rules us. He cleanses us. But then he calls us to take that message of the gospel and send it out into all the cities, all the towns of our hearts, so that they can believe so that we can believe in the area of lust, so we can believe in the area of greed, so that we can believe in the area of pride, so we can believe in the area of anger. And when we bring the gospel to all those places and the news of the cross gets to those places and really goes deep, then those battles start to be won. So as Christians, we're called to believe in Christ and to go on for more belief, more faith, more growth. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Christians, I know summer can be a, a lazy time for us, but it's never right for us to have a lazy time spiritually. A time where we say, I'm just going to make peace with my sin. I'm just going to be who I've always been. I'm just going to live how I've always lived. I'm just going to be okay with complacency. We shouldn't have those times. And so, so a good time now, a good reason to confess sin right now is to look at yourself and to say, I know I've fallen short. I know that I've been lazy. I haven't made war with sin. Confess that to him. The Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian, then the good news is that you can become a Christian and you can become one in your seat. There's nothing that you do to become a Christian. You just put your trust in Christ. He did all the work. So if you're here and you recognize that there's sin in you, the Bible says it's in all of us. It says no one is righteous, not even one. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of what we should be in Jesus Christ. We're all broken. We're all twisted. We all bring this resume to God that's not impressive, and we all deserve his judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to us. He came because we couldn't make our own way back to God. We couldn't work hard enough. We couldn't become religious enough. We couldn't do enough good things to get God to accept us. So he came and died on the cross the death that we deserved. He was buried, and he rose again. And he takes his goodness, which was perfect, and he credits it to our account if we'll believe in him. So if you'll turn from sin and unbelief and turn to him in simple faith, he promises to forgive you, to cleanse your sin, to wash it away, to make you his. So once you've done that, then he calls you to go out and live a different life. Live a different life that comes from the transformation that he brings. Because he doesn't just come into a life and leave it exactly like it is. He comes in and rearranges the whole place. So if you're here today and you're turning from sin and unbelief and trusting in Jesus, he promises he's forgiven you and cleansed you and made you his. 
And now he's called you to go out and be different. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that it's displayed here in this Lord's Supper, that it'll be displayed in a few minutes in baptism. And we thank you for your faithfulness toward us. Lord Jesus, you have changed us and transformed us. And Lord, we pray that you keep doing it. And that all these unbelieving dark corners of our hearts would come to believe as a result of the light of your gospel being shed on them. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.